Welcome to the Pocus Peers podcast. Today on the podcast with me, I have Amy Porter, Executive Director of the Tiny Hearts Can Foundation. Thank you, Amy, so much for joining me today. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure thing. Personally, as balloons come raining down on my face, I am a uh, mom to two young kids and a wife to my wife, Sam. I spend most of my time being a full-time mom to my kiddos. I have my eldest, Frankie, who is six, and my youngest, Arturo, or Artie, as we call him. And he just celebrated his third birthday, thus the balloons raining from the heavens. I'm a full-time mom, but academically, I am trained as a music teacher, and education is kind of my jam. I have recently become a CHD advocate due to my own personal experience and became the executive director of Tiny Hearts Can Foundation, which is a nonprofit located in Alberta, Canada, that I founded alongside two of Alberta's fetal and pediatric cardiologists. I'm here to make a change in the uh, prenatal detection rates of heart defects. I'm excited to have you on today, Amy. I first met Amy or heard her story about her son and how he was diagnosed with CHD on the Fetal Heart Society webinar. And I thought there is no better person to let us as sonographers know how important our role as a sonographer is than coming from a parent like Amy and her son being diagnosed with CHD. Before Amy shares her story with us, I want you all to be aware that you're probably going to need a box of tissues because that was me when I heard her story when I was sitting and listening on the Fetal Heart Society webinar. Amy, if you don't mind, I'll let you tell us your story about how your son was diagnosed. Absolutely. I'm going to add some extra tidbits of information that I think are helpful for sonographers just to kind of have the whole diagnostic picture and history of my own pregnancy. And then if you wanna know more, I absolutely give my presentations live. I've been delivering these presentations and trying to make a difference in sonography, educational institutions, as well as radiology clinics across Canada and hopefully the US as things continue. Historically, I was just a typical obstetrical patient. This was my third pregnancy. My first pregnancy that I had, I miscarried before the 11 week mark. I knew that the first trimester was definitely a hairy part in pregnancy, but I think that there is this idea that patients have that once you make it past your first trimester, everything is smooth sailing, right? And I now know that that is not the case. We worked really hard to get pregnant with our second. After some fertility mishaps, they ended up thawing all of the donor semen that we had during transport to our facility and our donor had retired. So we had to find some across Canada, which was absolutely bonkers. But we ended up getting pregnant in December of 2019. I remember going to the ultrasound, the dating ultrasound, sound and they're like oh look at that great strong little heartbeat like awesome it's alive this is the easiest part now that we know that it's alive it should be fine and then as we all know the world took a crazy turn in march of 2020 i was working in a daycare i was doing childcare, and i was sent home and i wasn't allowed to work and this was right at the halfway mark of my pregnancy 
But because it was so early on in the pandemic, my family was able to go to my 20-week anatomy scan together. And this is where my wife and my daughter and I learned that we were going to be welcoming a baby boy to our all-female household. We decided on naming him Arturo, or Artie for short. Arturo means bear. And that's something that my wife's father called her when she was younger. But as my pregnancy progressed, my belly began to measure larger. And I knew from previous pregnancy with my daughter that this was likely just because I have a long torso, but my obstetrician wanted to be extra cautious just to make sure I didn't have too much fluid. Or at least that's what I deducted from my Google search. Like, why am I being sent in for an ultrasound? Like, okay, if I have too much fluid, then I'll be put on bed rest and it'll be a challenge staying at home with my daughter, but we'll make that work. And we went into this ultrasound, I was 28 weeks pregnant. And we had expected that my daughter and my wife would be able to come with me for this ultrasound. But because of the pandemic and how things progressed, they ended up saying, no, you guys have to go back. I'm sorry, it's just the patient. So my daughter, who was three at the time, was distraught, but we managed to win her over by telling her that she could watch Moana on my wife's phone while I went in for this ultrasound. That worked out just fine. So they went back to the car and I went into this ultrasound. I've had a lot of ultrasounds. The way that I keep myself entertained is I try to figure out what it is that we're looking at. It makes me feel really smart and it's like a really fun puzzle. So for an ultrasound that was supposed to be looking at my fluid levels, I noticed that we weren't looking at my fluid levels. My sonographer was spending a long time looking at his heart. She was very quiet and very focused. And as I'm staring at the screen, I could see her write LVOT, RVOT. What in the world is that? Like I knew that we were looking at his heart, but I couldn't figure out for the life of me what part we were looking at. And for 25 minutes, she sat and did a very thorough investigation and I got that feeling of unease. Like I could sense that something's wrong. I've had ultrasounds before. Why are we spending so much time looking at his heart? And I know that legally sonographers can't tell you anything to do with your scan, but my curiosity got the best of me. I was wanted to see if I could get anything out of her. I said, I noticed that we've been looking at his heart for a really long time. She said, yeah, he's just being wiggly. I can't get the photos that I want. But I could feel him and he wasn't being wiggly. Huh, interesting. That would track if you're trying to keep a patient calm and not raise suspicion. That's exactly what I would say. She got up and left to get the pictures verified and was gone for another 25 minutes. I sat in the exam room with this panic building inside of me. Something is not right. It's not right. What's going on? She came back and said, sorry, there was a really long lineup. You can go. And as I waddled down the two flights of stairs to the parking lot, cradling my pregnant belly, I tried to convince myself that I was just being paranoid that absolutely everything was fine, but I couldn't shake the feeling that my life was about to be changed forever. I got into 
the passenger side of our vehicle. Our daughter was still happily watching her movie. And I said quietly to my wife so that Frankie wouldn't hear. I told her, I, I think there's something wrong with his heart. She tried to quell my fears, but in the 12 years that we had been together at the time, my gut instincts have scarcely been wrong. And she said, well, if something's wrong, they'll give us a call. And I tried to push it aside. We went and we took a little adventure to the ducky pond nearby. But at seven o'clock that evening, I received a phone call from my obstetrician's office asking for me to come in for an emergency appointment the next day. That's when I knew that there was something definitely not right. And for that evening, and for the entire morning the next day, my appointment was booked for two o'clock in the afternoon. There were three children who cycled through my mind. First was George. He's the son of a good friend of mine. He has had two heart transplants before the age of four. And I know now that transplant is not a cure and that transplanted organs do not last forever. So at some point in this boy's lifetime, he is going to need another heart. And then there's Bennett. And I want people to really know his name. His name's Bennett. He was loved for every moment that he was here. And he continues to be loved and missed for every moment that he has been gone. He lived only briefly after birth. But his life still matters. And his name means something. It means blessed. And then there's my son, Artie. Where is he going to fit into this picture? George Bennett Artie. George Bennett Artie. Those names and their experiences rotated all night long. Surely these things have to be rare, right? This can't just happen to me out of nowhere. I was expecting to be pregnant. I did all the things I was supposed to. I was taking the prenatal vitamins. I was avoiding all the things that you should avoid. This has to be a rare experience. I went into that obstetrician's office alone due to the ongoing nature of the pandemic, feeling as though I was attending a sentencing for a crime that I did not commit. The doctor walked in, she closed the door. It was a doctor whom I had never met before. And she said, I'm sorry, it appears as though your son has a rare condition called transposition of the great arteries. Basically what that means is that his arteries came in backwards. I'm really sorry, but I couldn't just dissociate in that moment. I have to stay present. I have to be able to explain this to my wife when I get home. So I looked at her and I said, what are his chances? She said, I don't know. I said, okay, is it fixable? And she said, I don't know. The hospital will be in contact with you to set up an appointment to confirm his diagnosis, and then they'll take care of you from there. Do you have any other questions? <laughs> like I had about a thousand questions, but it was clear that this doctor didn't know anything about his condition. What was that even called again? 
So I asked her to write it down. And as she handed me a yellow sticky note with the words transposition of the great arteries on it, she looked me square in the eyes and said, just don't Google it. My experience as a patient <laughs> was that this is a rare thing that happens and nobody knows anything about it. I took it upon myself to Google it and to research it thoroughly so that I at least understood what was happening to me because no one else had the answers for me. And what I discovered was that his condition is repairable sometime in the first 10 days of life with an open heart surgery. And that his surgery has a 96% success rate. If somebody had just told me that, I would have felt so much better. But at least now I know and I can make a solid plan and we can rearrange everything to make that happen. So when I went in for that confirmation appointment, I felt confident. I knew the path that we were going to be taking. It wasn't this big, scary thing anymore. I knew that there was a solid medical plan that we would be making together. When they confirmed his diagnosis, they took me into another room to tell me what was going on. It was basically a closet, this very small exam room. And the doctor said, so your son has transposition of great arteries. I'm like, yeah, I know, and I'm feeling great. And she goes, because it is a critical diagnosis, you do have the option to terminate your pregnancy. And that kind of just brought me back to the severity of our issue. They don't offer that lightly. Not when you're 30 weeks pregnant. And I knew that it wasn't the right choice for me, but I completely understand how other families can make that decision for themselves. I know in the grand scheme of things that my son's heart defect is not as severe as others that are out there. And that the long-term care for him likely doesn't include surgery after surgery after surgery and a lifetime of medications that degrade your organs, that cause you to go into liver failure, that cause your whole system to shut down. We're not rerouting his entire circulatory system. He just needs an arterial switch. I understand why families make that choice and I do not judge them for it. It is an important part of this kind of plan especially for those who can't or don't have access to free public health care. One of my very first questions that I Googled was, how much money is this going to cost me personally? And for my family living in Alberta, Canada, the answer was zero dollars. So I can make that decision very easily and very confidently for myself, but I know families who have millions of dollars in medical debt just to keep their child alive. That is a decision I can't imagine making. It's an impossible decision for any family to make. Once we got his diagnosis, I wanted to make sure that my experience didn't just happen in vain. We were approached by the University of Alberta to be a part of research studies. And I said, absolutely, if we can learn more, from my experience, from my son's diagnosis, if we can help more families, absolutely, we're going to be a part of that. The, the research study that we were a part of was to see how likely it was that when my son is born, that his foramen ovale would close. 
I went in for lots of checkups. They would give me oxygen to simulate baby being born. And after various appointments, I asked the doctor, I said, okay, I know that this study isn't done yet, but based on the information that you have, what would be your prediction? Is it likely that he is going to need intervention right after birth? He said, well, his foramen is large and it's flappy, so it doesn't look like it's likely to close. Oh, cool. Awesome. Because I know that with his specific condition, he didn't have a VSD. He didn't have any other holes in his heart. It was just DTGA in its simplest form. Great. If we can get out of this whole thing with only having one surgical intervention or one surgical procedure happening, all the better. My birth was a planned induction so that all medical teams could be ready and available when he's born. It was supposed to happen a couple of days prior, but they said, actually, we just had a few other cardiac kids come in unexpectedly. We're a bit maxed out for our personnel. We're going to hold you back for your induction. Okay, sounds good. July 31st arrived. I arrived with my wife at the hospital early in the morning. We made plans for my three-year-old daughter to go and live with my sister's house for however long that we needed. They went camping, she rode ponies, she went swimming. She remembers a really great time with her cousins. But we had explained to her earlier on that her baby brother had a broken heart and that it needed to be fixed. So she understood what was happening. Here we are at my induction and at 10.22 p.m. that day, our son arrived silently into the world. I immediately sat up because I knew that I wasn't going to have much time with him and I stared at his blue-toned body as they held him at the end of the table. They cut his umbilical cord and he was whisked off to the NICU room beside us where they got him ready for transport to the Stollery Children's Hospital. He didn't cry. He didn't make any sound whatsoever. But I asked my wife to take my phone and take pictures because I knew, I knew that I wasn't going to be with him. I saw him again an hour later, packed up and ready to go. At this point, they had already given him prostaglandins, which is a medication used to keep his ductus arteriosus open. They had probes all over his body to monitor his vitals. And he was strapped into this little stork thing. It was a very cute little box and he was ready to go. And they rolled him up beside me. He had oxygen, the cannula going up his nose. And they were telling me the plan to get him to the hospital, but I didn't hear any of it. I just stared at him and wondered if I was allowed to touch him. As a parent, wondering if you're allowed to touch your kid, it's like, wait a minute. No, of course I can. He's my child, but he doesn't feel like my own. I gave him a rub on his head, and then moments later, they were gone. My wife, we had made the plan that she would go and make sure that he was set up and stable at the stallery. She left to go be with him. I got my phone back. And aside from the five minutes that I had with him, 
all I had were the photos on my phone and the 20 second video that she took of him. I was eventually put into recovery, sitting at a hospital in the maternity ward, listening to mothers care for their crying infants. And I am sitting alone in a room in the dark, somehow expected to sleep. They asked me if I wanted to start pumping and I'm like, you know what? I'm not really in the mood for that right now. <laughs> I was texting with with my wife all evening long. She had to find the public parking at midnight. She hadn't eaten anything, so she picked up some fast food along the way. She's running through the hospital, trying to find where the NICU is. Normally, at this point in time, they have already given us a tour of the hospital, but because of COVID, nobody's allowed to go in anywhere. So we have been given absolutely no information as parents, aside from the medical procedures that are about to happen. She spends 15 minutes running around trying to ask the security guards how to get to the NICU. They don't know, they're just security guards. But she finds her way up. And as she finds his room, there are already a few doctors mulling about. His oxygen saturations were already not so great. I said, well, we're going to try intubating him. She watched them intubate him. She said, took three tries because he was swollen. Yeah, that last one had a bit of blood on it, but he should be okay. But his oxygen saturations continued to tank. And it was clear that he needed surgical intervention. His foramen had closed. With my wife watching in the room, even more nurses and doctors came rushing into his room so that they could medically paralyze him medically sedate him and they raced a catheter into the inside of his heart ripping physically ripping that foramen ovale back open with a balloon she said that it took three extremely violent pulls but the last one did it and his saturations came back up We knew all of this stuff was going to happen, but when you're in it and you're living it, it's a completely different emotional experience. Without knowing about his anatomy and his condition, we would have had a completely different birth plan. We would have delivered at a hospital that could not perform that procedure. And we would have watched our son die. But because we knew the doctors were prepared, we delivered at the right place. We were able to find care for our daughter, long-term care for her. And thankfully we live in a great city that has all of these facilities here. So we didn't have to travel from anywhere. I can't imagine families learning about their child's condition for the first time living in a remote area and having to call a helicopter to come and hopefully save their child's life before it's too late. His balloon septostomy stabilized him until his open heart surgery at seven days old. And after his surgery, I could tell already that he was healthy. You're sitting there for seven days watching your child survive. 
and then they have this surgery and his skin was pink. It was noticeably different immediately after his surgery. And then only eight days later, we were discharged from the hospital with his only prescriptions written for vitamin D and infant Tylenol as needed. That's it. I realized how lucky we were that all of the stars aligned, but I had questions. If congenital in congenital heart defects means present at birth, should that have been picked up at my 20 week anatomy scan? And the answer was yes. And I went, whoa, okay. So it was lucky that I got in for another scan just because I have a long torso at 28 weeks and we had somebody pick it up. Okay, wait a minute. How often does this go missed? How common is this? Heart defects are the most common type of birth defect. Okay, that's not what anybody told me. I'm learning all of this for the first time. One in 100 kids have a heart defect. Okay, so it's not that rare, but it's called rare because 1% is technically rare, but it's not a rare experience in the least. And how often is it missed? It's missed approximately half of the time that kids don't get a diagnosis. And I went, it was literally just a flick of the coin, whether my son is here or whether he was not. And as I'm Googling relentlessly, because I feel like if I know all the information, then I can't be scared of it, right? I know all of the risks. And I looked at my wife and I'm like, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? Why hasn't anybody told us that this is happening? I knew from a parent's perspective that the nuchal scan is to look for genetic anomalies like Down syndrome. Down syndrome has a prevalence of one in 700. Heart defects are one in 100. Why don't parents have this same kind of medical emphasis on their 20 week scan? All we think about is the gender reveal. And I know now that that's not what it's about. I can't just sit by with all this information and do nothing. Kids are dying needlessly. I started public speaking to share with sonographers that you guys are my heroes. Without you, my son would not be here. And your jobs are critically important to the healthcare system. You're not taking cute pictures. You are doing life-saving work. And I understand that you guys don't see the same patients, the same customers, clients, however your facility frames it. You're not seeing these people repeatedly. You don't get to see the baby afterward most of the time. You just do a scan and send them on their merry way. And I realize that my story is important. The patient is important. And if we can find a way to bridge the gap of understanding in this human experience of living through this questionable, very frightening time of uncertainty, if we can bridge the gap of understanding with sonographers and parents, we can work together to save lives. 
when I was a kid, somebody said, well, what do you want to do with your life? You know, trying to motivate you to think about your future. And what I wrote down as a teenager was, I want to make a positive difference for as many people as possible. And I can't think of a better way to do that than to educate. Like I said, my background is education. I reached out to two of Alberta's leading fetal and neonatal cardiologists, Dr. Lisa Hornberger and Dr. Luke Eckersley. And I said, I have this idea of creating a nonprofit. It's framed after a successful uh, charity in the UK called Tiny Tickers. Can we do that in Canada? Can we have educational resources? Can we go out and do training? for sonographers, do hands-on training, teach people how to find these heart defects more commonly. Because within all of my Googling, I Googled extensively the barriers that sonographers and families face. And I have all of the data to show where the problems lie. And for a lot of these resources, Lisa Hornberger and Luke Eckersley's names were on the research articles. These are peer-reviewed articles in the journals of obstetrician. Okay, can we make a plan? Can we go out and do hands-on training? And they said, yes, absolutely. We'd love to be involved. I didn't anticipate my life taking this turn. I didn't go to university to become an executive director of Tiny Hearts Can Foundation. I didn't even take biology in high school. <laughs> I thought to myself, if something is wrong with me, I want a doctor to tell me about it because I don't want to know. Blood kind of gives me the ickies. But now I'm like, dude, the heart is so cool. It is so interesting how the heart is different in utero than it is out of utero. And again, we're in our first operational year and we funded um, this virtual symposium called We Can Fetal Heart Screen. And we funded it so that Anybody who participates can get free CMEs and free CPD credits. It was two mornings in June, and we maxed out our Zoom license at a thousand registrants. Whoa, that is a huge demand. But because we maxed out, how do we make this available? So all of the recordings from this event are still up and free for people to review. And you can still gain those CME and CPD credits until June of 2024. This is just our first operational year working on an extremely limited budget. And I am so excited and honored to be a part of something so life-changing for so many families. And to know that what we're doing is helping kids just like my son. Because without knowing about his diagnosis, I was saved from a broken heart too. And I want to thank every sonographer out there for the jobs that they do because it's not easy work. Thank you, Amy. That story is emotional and I hope that every sonographer on here just knows from listening to your story how important our jobs truly are as sonographers. And I'm so glad that you're starting this for so many people, not just for sonographers, but for the moms and the dads, the parents, 
everybody out there that deserves to have their children after birth. As time goes on, I do want to create more resources for families so that they understand what the 20-week scan is about because I know from a personal experience that we really don't get it, that you're analyzing and measuring over 40 different points on the baby's body within a 45-minute time frame if you're lucky. At the same time, going through this whole thing, I know how helpless you feel as a parent that all of this is kind of just happening to you. So I want to find tools so that parents can feel like they're advocating for their own child, that they're also making a difference. And if sonographers want to reach out to me and tell me your thoughts, I want to have just a couple of easy questions that parents can ask their sonographer just to bring it up. Say like, hey, I've heard that one in 100 kids have a heart defect. Can you let me know when you get to the cardiac portion of your exam? And just leave it at that. That way, the sonographer is thinking, right, heart defects are important. And then the other thing that I was thinking of having parents ask is how much time is allotted for this exam? Because sometimes parents don't realize that you are doing a 45 minute exam and they go, why is it taking so long to figure out what the gender of the baby is? Well, no, that's not what we're actually here to do. So that's a good part. And then if there is time at the end of the exam, is it beneficial to say, could you just look over the heart one more time if there's extra time? Three simple questions that take less than two minutes to ask so that parents feel empowered and they are feeling like they are already caring for their child who isn't even here yet. I, I didn't know that advocating for your kid happens before they're even born. <laughs> it's a way to reframe how to care for your kid, right? The more information parents have, the better. Absolutely. Can you share with everyone listening today how they can contribute to the Tiny Hearts Can Foundation? Yeah, so I have a donate page on our website, tinyheartscan.org slash donate if you want to go right to the donation thing. Like I said, we are brand new, but we can do a lot more with more funding. The best way to support us is either sharing our posts on social media, helping to raise awareness, or by donating financially. Becoming a monthly donor is awesome, and it makes such a huge difference to me personally. I would definitely write you a handwritten card, and I'd see if Artie wants to draw a picture for you. He's all about messy play and paints these days. So that would be the best way. And the other thing is just to continue to advocate talk to your patients, let them know what it is that you're doing. Hey, if I'm quiet, I'm just super focused. Continue advocating for the care of your patients and also just spread awareness and let, it, let people know that we're here. As we grow, I'd love to have more sonographer outreach. We are going to do the most with the cash that we get. Financial donations are definitely helpful. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for coming on with me today. And to all the sonographers listening, I truly hope that this story inspires you. I know that we are already great at what we do, but I hope it just makes you even better and to take a closer look at the heart every time. Thank you, Amy. Thank you all for the work that you do.